So early stage sectors that are active right now that we're interested in. One is definitely this area of generative AI that everybody's talking about. As Lightspeed globally, we've invested in companies like uh, Stable Diffusion, which is a large language model company. We've invested in Tome, which is AI for presentations. In India, you mentioned Yellow earlier, which is customer support software, has uh, relaunched with generative AI embedded all across their software. And that's really driven up the core metric of the industry, which is deflection rates. And so AI is everywhere. But it's not the panacea, it's not a silver bullet. So we're looking at it very carefully. Where can it actually sustain and drive big value creation in the India context? Hi, wherever you're listening to us, I hope you're doing well. Welcome to another episode of the Startup Fridays, weekly conversations with accomplished entrepreneurs and VC investors. I'm Hari Arakali, and in this episode, Dev Hare, a partner at Lightspeed, one of the most prominent global early-stage VC firms operating in India, talks about how and why he became a venture capital investor and what keeps him going today. Dev also talks about how India's startups are changing, the ways in which light speed is different in his view, and some lessons from his own career, having tasted entrepreneurship firsthand before turning VC investor, which include the importance of timing, the value of compounding not just investments but relationships, and a simple productivity hack that always works for him. So, yeah, I mean, of course, in the Indian startup scene, nobody needs to know, get an introduction to light speed within the startup scene. Everyone knows you. And in, in your own uh, specific case, I mean, the breadth of your portfolio is kind of, I mean, off the top of my head, I know some of them, yellow.ai to uh, pixel, uh, so, so you've covered a, like a big sort of spectrum, but again, for a more general audience, maybe you could just briefly tell us a little bit about yourself, give us a sort of two, three minute snapshot of a very long journey from computer science and MBA all the way to VC partner. And, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. I mean, the journey, um, as, as, uh, as it goes with journeys is, uh, you know, looking back, you can draw a thread through it, but looking forward, it wasn't predictable. Mm -hmm. And there's still a long way to go, hopefully. Um, but the journey for me, a baseline for a lot of um, what uh, uh, my interests have been and where I've worked and how I've worked has been, I uh, uh, grew up in like eight different countries. Wow. Okay. Uh, my dad was in the Indian uh, Foreign Service so a diplomat and so you know I was born in uh, uh, the People's Republic of China in Beijing uh, during the Cultural Revolution there um, I was a kid there or baby there so I didn't sort of remember anything but from there we went to lots of different countries in uh, in in Asia so obviously in India we spent time in Pakistan as well then in Europe we spent time in Germany in Belgium and so on. And then from there, I went to college in the US uh, at Penn. And and then there did something that sort of influenced me, which is both product management and engineering as a degree. So more engineering as a degree, but product. And then finance uh, at the Wharton School over there. So both finance and technology. And that's sort of where I am right now, if you think about it. And that wasn't predictable at that time. As I was saying earlier, I failed my first Microsoft uh, 
software engineer interview. So that was not great. But um, where the journey has brought me now is um, based on that experience, based on uh, being representing representing India in other countries, that sort of thing about India being a special place, India being having a lot of promise in the future. That to me is sort of still driving me today. I see a lot of, um, I get a lot of energy from all the progress that's happening here. Um, not just in uh, technology and internet, uh, but more broadly, socially, um, politically, uh, lots of change, infrastructure in the country, all of these things are helping in the development of the country. And to me, I tie it together in a way in a way that's driving me now and will drive me next 10, 20 years, remainder of my career, which is that we as investors and technologists and builders, we're helping build India. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think quite different from how the internet came up in the US, where it was already a mature economy. And even in China, where it was semi-developed already. Here it's come at a point, you know, let's say 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when the country was still early in its development. And so whether it's healthcare, education, financial services, entertainment, uh, and you name it, you keep going on, that industry is now impacted by the internet. And sometimes the biggest organizations in those industries are internet companies. So actually, I think it's had a huge impact on the development of the country and will continue to have. And, and, and finally, I'll say, from a government policy perspective, technology has been used as well. It's amazing. I mean, we, we don't have to belabor the point there, but the whole India stack and reaching, you know, a billion plus people um, is just only possible through technology. So that's what's driving me. It's, it's quite a phenomenal sort of impact that technology has in this country. And India is one of those unique places where there's scale and there's intent and there's private and public sector that's using technology to get to that scale. You, you don't find this in the US, you don't find this in Europe, um, and so on. So it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Is that uh, kind of the interest for you in terms of how you pick companies to back? Do you look at companies that are very tech heavy, uh, or do you actually specifically focus on technology companies? I mean, some of the companies that I know that, that uh, you're on the board of, that you've invested in, um, these are all tech companies, but... Do you also otherwise invest in other, in a sort of a sector agnostic way where the application of technology is very strong, but it may not necessarily be a technology company? Yeah, uh, yes. The short answer is yes. The slightly longer answer is just building on the previous point, which is that technology is helping build the country mm -hmm. uh, and therefore impacting every sector. There are technology enabled companies to be built in every sector. Mm -hmm. um, and the way we at Lightspeed pick these companies is we want to pick companies that are creating their category. So an example I'll give is early on in the day in, in 2012, I think it was when we backed Oyo. Um, what was the category at that time? It was uh, hospitality and lodging in a sense. And if you looked at lodging in India at that time, you had the five-star hotels, which you still have, which obviously are out of the reach of 99.9% .9 of India. And then you had uh, guest houses, which were very low quality um, and also un unclear what experience you'd get if you went there. So there was this big category that had not been created 
of reliable accommodation when you travel. And so Oyo came along and created that category. And yes, there've been other companies in that space now and so on, and there's been a journey. The category is firmly there. So it's, it's, a, it's an element of building the country. Now people can travel more freely, safely, securely, be assured of what experience they'll get, where previously they wouldn't go somewhere. So that to me is a category creating opportunity that types of things we back. Another category creating company we backed is Baiju's. Despite the media coverage of it these days, we do think it created the category of online education and, uh, and got education to a much wider uh, set of people in India than ever before uh, high quality education. So I think there's something there about creating categories. Um, and even on the business software side, where a lot of our investments go, approximately half of our investments as a fund, uh, software for HR, software for marketing, software for supply chain, software for factories, mm. software for wholesalers. Um, there's a lot of India, a vast majority of India that's unorganized. And so creating organized categories is a theme that's run through our investments. Yes, with technology, but you can think of Oran as a category creating company in wholesale to retail distribution, where previously it was purely offline, fairly inefficient. Uh, people on each side of that wholesalers, retailers couldn't meet new counterparties because they felt it was not, they couldn't trust the other side. This thing brought trust into the equation and is, and is driving retail trade up dramatically. So that's creating a category of ho online wholesale, online retail trade. Um, and that's software plus marketplace. That's a model that's emerged. And the final thing I'll say is the software, pure software for businesses. So we've got a company called Darwin Box uh, that is HR software for mid-size and large enterprises in India and across the globe. Um, we backed them as a company that first targeted companies in India. Actually, typically you won't hear that from investors because they'll say India is too small a market or whatever. But we firmly believe that the category is gonna grow very big in India. And that Indian businesses will buy software for all the reasons they buy software everywhere else in the world. You want to be more efficient. You want to be more competitive. You want to be closer to your customers, all of that stuff. So category creation, I'd say, is the core sort of thesis. And yeah, technology helps in doing that. And you go into any sector of the economy, you can create these new categories, education, like I said, financial services, uh, supply chain, entertainment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Again, from a more general audience's perspective, briefly, you could tell us about uh, Lightspeed itself uh, a bit more. And uh, and then we can maybe delve into uh, how you've arrived at some of these companies, because many of these companies that you've backed are now, they now seem to be doing very, very well. Um, so a little bit about Lightspeed. Uh, Lightspeed is a global uh, technology investing fund or set of funds. Lightspeed started off in the late 1990s in Silicon Valley in the US. Um, pretty soon after that, in the early 2000s, the firm uh, started investing in China, then India, uh, Israel, and now is in Europe and Southeast Asia as well. So six innovation hubs of the world. That's where we invest. We firmly believe that the world is moving towards, or this investing industry is moving towards uh, global uh, firms that can help founders wherever they are. And that's what we want to do uh, and we are doing. Uh, the firm 
invest in companies that are starting out. In India, for example, in the last uh, 15 years, two thirds of our investments have been seed stage companies. These are companies that are pre-revenue in many cases. And in, and in a substantial amount of those cases are pre-product. So there's actually nothing built yet. Mm. It's essentially an idea and a founder um, that we meet and back. Um, an example, back to Oyo, he had one guest house that he was managing at that mm. time, Ritesh Agarwal. Um, and so that's what we do. We have evolved now to where we back companies at that early stage, pre-revenue, pre-product. Um, series A, as we call it in the industry, which is some revenue, a few customers. And then we also do growth investing now, which is companies that are substantially into revenue, might be a few hundred crores in revenue, even a couple of thousand uh, crores in revenue. Uh, if they're targeting the US, they might be even 20, 50, 100 million dollars in revenue. Um, and uh, we bring in our global growth funds into that uh, and invest 50, 100, 150 million dollars in one shot into those sorts of companies. So that's sort of the span of what we do. We've got about 75 investment professionals around the world in these six geographies I talked about. And finally, we have a business services team around the world, which helps our founders grow their companies in terms of talent, which is org structure, recruiting, all that, uh, corporate development, which is buying other companies um, and so on, um, finance, which is setting up the financial operations and MISs and all of that stuff, marketing, positioning and PR and all those sorts of things um, and and more. We have customer introductions, a team that does that in the US and so on. So there's a bunch of these underpinnings that we think are important for every company to succeed. And we think a global firm should provide that so that increases the probability of success for the founders that we back. Is this something more recent, uh, having a full-fledged business services, you know, team as well within a VC firm. Is this a sort of a direction in which now modern VC firms have evolved or has it kind of had different flavors of that of this all along? I think there are different flavors out there. There's definitely been a trend in this direction, but it's not something that every firm does or necessarily even believes in. If you look at when venture capital started in the 1960s in the US, mm-hmm. It was very much a boutique cottage industry where, you know, one or two partners would work with startups and founders that were within driving distance. Mm -hmm. That's where it started. Kind of like accounting and banking and uh, law also started in those sorts of ways, small boutique shops, right? But where it's involved, I would say post the internet arriving on the scene and post the globalization of innovation uh, coming up in China, India, et cetera, we started seeing um, um, certain firms build out these business services to help their founders. Um, and uh, we certainly believe in that. Uh, and there are a few other firms that believe in that. I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really helped our founders. Um, a lot of them, when they start, especially in a country like India, which is a, you know where the venture ecosystem really got started in 2006, we are whatever, 16, 17 years into it. It's still a young ecosystem, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. to the US and, and, and other countries. And so inherently, there's not these experts floating around who can help founders with everything. This founders still need help. And also you have a lower proportion of second and third time founders. You have a lot higher proportion of first time folks who've come in from college or you know, a job at uh, ITC or a job at uh, you know, McKinsey 
or uh, or a job at uh, you know a media company anywhere and they they need that initial help to um, find the right people to join them to get their first few customers to just get up and running and so i think there's more need for that in a country like india than anywhere else i just want to go back to something that you started out with uh, about your work in terms of Uh, telling people the story of india what's happening here the opportunity here uh, i mean the the broad the broad strokes of various factors that are contributing I, mean, i guess folks are generally familiar with i mean whether it's the demographics or the internet or mobile internet and so on uh, but i'm thinking that you have uh, much more granular insight into specific things where people may not necessarily know that these are opportunities in india um, um and i'm particularly interested in uh, whether your investors lps others uh, are clued into opportunities in india where companies are building real ip um things out of india for the global markets um i mean does the question make sense yeah yeah absolutely and we hear shades of these questions uh, all the time um i'm happy to answer them yeah, yeah please if you like um from the lp perspective so these lps are um in general are large institutions around the world they could be universities mm. they could be pension funds in different countries they could be sovereign funds in different countries um they could be you know family offices they could be other funds for that matter funds mm. of funds is what the term is um so there are a bunch of these folks typically with a very long outlook sometimes if it's a large family office or university or pension fund you have a 50 year to 100 year outlook mm. from now mm. so it's certainly not short term uh, capital um and are they clued into what's happening here and where the innovation is i think generally they are um they read a lot of the media they visit um they meet our companies uh, just like we if we visit our, our companies we meet their customers for example yeah um and so they have a view um i'd say that view over the last couple of decades has changed quite dramatically in the positive direction um one because we've seen innovative companies coming out of india also india has very become much more prominent on the global stage a lot of indian origin executives in the us uh, as has been talked about a lot um so they they quite clued in in terms of your earlier question on what are areas that other people may not be as familiar with where there's innovation going on i'm i'm reacting a little bit to your question on where is the real ip i think ip is a is it's a it's in my mind it's a little bit of a catch all phrase sure um some people think it's just purely sort of a piece of technology that's been patented mm. right um and i think we have to be a bit more uh expansive about the definition mm-hmm. uh now Uh, if we take that that very conservative definition of ip and say where does that apply in the world to what technology company actually you not too many technology companies fit into that not amazon not flipkart not uh, you know uh, sap in many cases it's like because software can be built given enough time and people you can earn money you can build the same thing mm-hmm. i think where the ip resides um in a lot of companies in india is how india works and how is that coded into the technology so i'll give you an example 
Uh, one of our companies, Box, HR software company, they compete against SAP and Oracle. And in India, lots of local companies, right? Everybody's got human capital management software, HCM. But what they do really effectively is that they understand that the way Indian companies work is different. For example, I'll just give you one example. And there's hundreds of such instances in a, in a company. When you want to do an expense uh, reimbursement in an Indian company, right? You take your receipt, you, you type stuff into an expense form and you give it to your manager. Your manager looks at it and says, I approve or I disapprove. If they approve it, it goes to their manager. And if you approve it, in many cases, it goes to their manager. Mm-hmm. So there's a three layer approval in many Indian corporates. In the West, this is not the case. They take a policy and then if you comply with the policy, you're done. You, nobody has to even approve it. At the most, if there's a little exception, it goes to a manager, then you're done. Now, these Western software companies coming to India are saying, use this Western way of reimbursements. The Indian companies are, are saying, no, we do business this way. We don't want to change that. Now think of hundred such examples in a company that ends up in a two-year consulting assignment where you have to change the software mm-hmm. to how India works. This IP, if I might call it that, is coded into Darwin Box to begin with. Mm-hmm. And this IP applies, this way of doing business is also how business is done in Southeast Asia and the Gulf countries. So it's actually quite a different way of, a different type of IP, but coded into software. These are workflows coded in and that gives them their advantage. So there's an IP-driven advantage there, in a sense, to this company. And this applies across the board. How do people buy online? How do people like to be entertained? How do people like to be educated? All of these are, this is stuff that's built into the software that Flipkart has and that all these other companies have. So I'd I'd be a bit more expensive. Um, And then when it comes to, uh, um, I'll just broaden it out a little bit for the the audience here. I think... uh, IP in India also is business model IP. So how is business done? Mm. I think there are a few areas where India is innovating on that. When you think about how Airtel grew, it was the first mobile operator in the world to have completely outsourced operations for everything other than marketing. Mm. And it did a really fabulous job at that, right? It outsourced the network build out and devices and all sorts of things, right? Um, business process outsourcing firm. That's an innovation, business model innovation that came from India. So I would count those in the set of things where India has innovated and that's continuing. Mm. For for the audience, you ask the question, what is new in technology? Um, Unorganized industries in India being organized. That's under the cover. That's what's happening with OYO, with Flipkart, with Paytm, with uh, Zetwork, which is organizing small factories across India. Thousands and thousands of small factories running at subscale. This is organizing them Um, and so on and so forth. So this organizing of unorganized is a huge trend that technology is enabling and it's happening in almost every industry uh, out there. That's one thing out there. The other one is uh, innovation and accessing um, mass India. How do you get technology to in the hands of a farmer? How do you get technology in the hands of a student in Chhattisgarh, right? And how does it help them? Um, It's not about getting the technology in the hands. It's about the benefit of that. And Indian firms have architected architected themselves in a way that's benefiting 
that's reaching these masses. You think of a company like Physicswala, which is a, a, a mass market education company re- reaching uh, tens of millions of people across India. They've architected their offering in a way that is really priced for uh, the average person studying for uh, you know university entrance. Mm-hmm. So I think those are two areas of innovation that are um, quite interesting. Organizing the unorganized, uh, reaching the masses with low cost yet profitable technology in all sorts of different sectors. Does looking at things this way allow you to not worry about which sector you're investing in and just maybe look at, um, I don't know, like a checklist? I mean, I'm kind of oversimplifying, but what I'm driving at is give us a sense of what you have figured out in terms of studying an opportunity that allows you to invest across, you know, the spectrum from OYO to Pixel. I mean, a guy who's running lodges to a guy who's sending hyperspectral imaging satellites. I mean, that's amazing. So I'm just thinking, how are you figuring out sort of the characteristics of these winners? Yeah. Um, we invest early, like I said earlier. So when we invest, they are not winners yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we look for, and sometimes this is a black box to people looking in from the other, how do investment yeah. firms make decisions? Uh, and they, how do they even find what to make an investment in? Um, these broad parameters for every, we, we look at about um, three to 5,000 companies a year. Mm-hmm. We don't meet all of them. There's not enough capacity to do that, but we invest in one out of every 200 companies we meet. Okay. Um, and there are certain tenets that have evolved over time that help us understand whether a company has the potential to reach greatness, to be an impact company, to change the future. Um, and, and, and the first one is um, the types of founders we like to back, or promoters we like to back. There's a certain, there's no one type, but there are certain characteristics that we think are very important. Um, one is sort of what we call zero to one DNA, the ability to create something out of nothing. Now, everybody might think they can do that, but actually a lot of people are very comfortable starting with something that's already been created and improving it bit by bit. Mm. So the zero to one, starting with a blank page and saying, I'm going to create a company out of this when the whole world is trying to kill me, um, is takes a special type of, you know, zero to one DNA. So there's something there and you sort of know it when you see it. Um, then we think about commercial savviness. Um, sometimes you find engineers are very good at building something but they really don't want to meet customers or be in the market. They love building what they want. That's great, but we would like to pair them up with a commercially savvy person who can sell it, who can figure out where to target it. So there's a builder and a seller usually profile in all companies. Steve Jobs versus Wozniak were sort of like that at Apple, for example. Just to finish the answer, I think on on the founding, on the founders we look for, in addition to what I said, clock speed, which is just high level of iteration, mm. ability to keep going. You, you try something, it doesn't work. You try something else, you try something else, it starts working. You keep going, you keep building bias to action. That sort of thing is something that mm. we find is a characteristic of successful founders. Mm. Sometimes it's overboard. They're like way, you know, aggressive, but sometimes it's less. But look, we're dealing with humanity and human beings. It, it, mm. it doesn't fit into a narrow box. So that's one, founders. 
The second is just the uh, market characteristics. Um, like I was saying earlier, we looked for category creating companies. So market characteristics should support the creation of a category and a gap, a big pain point that, that a set of customers have that are willing to pay enough over a set of time. In the case of Baiju's, millions of students in India willing to pay for tutoring. And they've already doing that, right? Mm. Now it's just expanding on that. Or in the case of um, OYO travelers be, being willing to pay a uh, thousand rupees a night uh, for a place versus, um, you know, obviously five stars being out of reach, but also not wanting to stay with relatives all the time or whatever, just being independent and traveling. So um, it just depends if there's a big enough gap. We look at the market, we talk to participants. Um, in the case of OYO, we went and talked to a bunch of guest houses that were not part of the OYO network. How do, how, what, how, what is business like? What, what helps you? What doesn't hurt you? How do customers find you? We talk to regulators in many of these times. We talk to, because a lot of these industries are regulated in the mobility case. We talk to the Ministry mm-hmm. of Transportation. We talk to Mighty. We talk to others to understand what regulation might change. Um, we talk to customers, not of the company we're investing in, but generally, who's buying services or products? Why are they buying it? How do they decide between different vendors? So we understand. So there's a sort of holistic view to understand how a market works and if mm-hmm. there's enough. And that's what takes us time. This is why investors, especially at the early stage or even growth stage, you can't make a decision overnight. You can, but it'll be an uninformed decision. So you'd rather do this work, understand founders, understand markets, and then make a decision to back a a company. Mm -hmm. Many times we find that this sort of work actually helps founders also and informs them Mm -hmm. on who else they should add to their team or which, how to position in a market or whether to go to this, this part of the market or that part of the market. And so um, actually it's a, it's sort of a deeper perspective we think we bring, bring drive depth into discussions versus be very high level. A lot of the media likes to characterize VCs as, you know, we move in two seconds and we make decisions because the business cycle is a certain way or isn't a certain way, or there's some news in the market or isn't in the market. But actually it's, we have to be very consistent whether the business cycle is in a boom or in a bust we just keep investing. Um, even today, if you think about the narrative on technology in India, people are saying, oh, VCs are not investing, you know, nothing's happening. We as Lightspeed are more active this year than last year. Mm. Um, there's innovation happening all the time. You mentioned Pixel, Space Tech is happening. We're seeing things in Agritech. We're seeing things in FinTech, uh, business technology, business software. Um, crypto, uh, there's still stuff happening over there and blockchain. Um, we're seeing stuff in um, micropayments and UPI being used for consumer offerings. We're seeing new media companies coming up. There's a lot of innovation and froth and, and sort of not froth, but uh, sort of ferment mm-hmm. in the Indian ecosystem. A lot of second time entrepreneurs coming out to start. That's very exciting to see. Um, so, yeah. Lot, lot to be excited about. Hmm. Are there any specific sectors? I mean, th- this all said, I mean, you did just now mention several sectors, but um, are, are there any specific sectors that, that you're particularly interested in? I mean, some of the ways that you said you identify founders and opportunities, in a sense, that's sort of a horizontal yeah. set of you know, way, ways of looking at uh, companies. 
Uh, that all said, are there any specific sectors that you think are particularly promising uh, from the India perspective over the coming years? Yeah, uh, I'll mention a few. And these, um, the window for these sectors uh, generating startups lasts anywhere between one to three years. And then you have to move on to mm-hmm. other sectors that are early stage. Obviously, at the growth stage, we look at all sectors. So early stage sectors that are active right now that we're interested in. Um, one is definitely this area of generative AI that everybody's talking about. Um, as Lightspeed globally, we've invested in companies like uh, Stable Diffusion, which is a large language model company. Um, we've invested in Tome, which is AI for presentations. Um, in India, you mentioned Yellow earlier, which is customer support software, has uh, relaunched with generative AI embedded all across their software. And that's really driven up um, the core metric of the industry, which is deflection rates. Um, and so AI is everywhere, um, but it's not the panacea, it's not a silver bullet. So we're looking mm-hmm. at it very carefully, where can it actually sustain and drive big value creation in the India context? Um, so that's one area. The second area um, that we're looking at is more supply chain and logistics. There's a lot of investments we've made in that category. Um, Velocity is one. Velocity, a company out of Chennai um, that is in the uh, quick commerce supply chain uh, side of things. Um, we have companies like Zetwork, which are doing uh, operating in the manufacturing supply chain. Like I said earlier, organizing thousands of small factories across India into a big virtual factory for mm-hmm. the world. Parts produced in this virtual factory are inside Airbus planes flying in the skies right now, um, and so on and so forth. So India is a very high quality manufacturing destination. Back to the development of India is something that this company is enabling, Zetwork. Um, So that's an area that we continue to be interested in, manufacturing, supply chain, logistics uh, as an area. And then the final third area I'll I'll say is uh, media and entertainment as an area. Not so much OTTs and 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 you know your Netflix equivalents and so on, but more new concepts focused on the Indian, you know, mass market. Um, we've got a company called Pocket FM, which has innovated a new audio format, um, growing very rapidly. The first consumer internet company from India to break out in the U.S. market. The mm-hmm. first. Um, and uh, doing very well on that front. Uh, it's based out of Bangalore. Um, and so we're looking for more such media sort of concepts that consumers pay, not through advertising only, but they pay money. We've got a company called ShareChat, which has right. been in the news that is like that, where consumers in there pay for digital goods um, at scale. Uh, and ShareChat today is at about 300 million monthly users. Uh, so it's getting to well, 20% of India, I guess, or 30% of adults uh, and uh, doing really well. So media concepts as well. So three things, media, entertainment, supply chain, logistics, manufacturing, and then the um, the uh, middle one, which is more AI, which sort of applies across lots of industries in a sense, but that's also an area we're paying attention to. Uh, as a VC firm that invests very early, um, and you said sometimes it's just a concept or... Is climate tech an area that you look at? I mean, especially outside of, uh, you know, EV companies, uh, outside of established 
segments like solar or things like that. But yeah, definitely. So broadly on the category of frontier technologies, we put climate in there, space tech in there, mm-hmm. and a few other categories. Within climate, there's definitely this EV side of things and we've invested behind that. There are also software companies that are targeting climate for measuring and monitoring a company's carbon sort of footprint and managing that over time. So we've invested behind that from Lightspeed globally. Um, And then there are these sort of harder, more science type projects in a sense where, you know, decarbonization might be one and, uh, and so on and so cell chemistry and so on. Those companies we look at, I'd say, and we've actively looked at investing behind those. We haven't seen one in India that we've backed yet. Those companies have a characteristic where there's sort of a binary characteristic there where you do all the science, R&D in a sense, and then at some point it might work and it might, or it might not. Hmm. So compared to a lot of the other business models we back, this model where it might work or might not is something that we have done in another category, which is biotech. Mm-hmm. Biotech has a similar category. Lightspeed is one of the leading biotech investors in the world. And that they have this characteristic where you found a molecule, you now go through various experiments with it, you trial it with animals, you then trial it with human beings. At the end of it, it may work, it may not work. Yeah. And this is why an average uh, drug that comes to market costs a billion dollars in the US. And it's expensive. Um, and there are various technologies that help in that. So there's some characteristic of that on the climate sort of science side. And so there's a certain way of investing there that we approach. A lot of syndicated uh, approaches where we partner with other investors because these are long lead cycle type of investments um, and so on. There's other ways to do that. We look at that. We haven't done one in India yet. We'd absolutely love to uh, look at more. We've looked at a ton. We've put out a climate report ourselves and broken out these industries on our our, uh, blog. and like I said, coming back to EV side, we've invested behind, software side, we've invested behind, the sort of more science side, yet to invest, but looking forward to it. There should be some interesting innovations coming that work in a country like India, sort of, again, mass market, low cost, but effective, uh, could be something that India could do. Are those the things that you have not yet found, in, in especially in the deep tech uh, side of things? And um, I'm thinking that, I guess by definition, in these kinds of deep tech, hard science and engineering based companies, companies are, I mean, the startups will naturally be competing with uh, multinationals mm. um, and other startups in, in other deeper ecosystems, whether it's in Silicon Valley or in, I don't know, Berlin or Tel Aviv, uh, where some of the skills and experience they need, and also the larger science and engineering uh, ecosystem, including uh, connects with universities and research schools might be much more established, uh, which probably is still not so so well established in India. Uh, these are the kinds of things that you feel are still missing. Uh, is that what you've found because you've not so far invested in India? The set of organizations and people going out uh, after these sorts of countries are deeper in some other countries, but it's not nothing in India, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's IISC, whether it's IIT Madras, those sorts of places, there is deep research going on, whether it's ISRO, you know, and the whole space tech industry and the innovation there on cost and uh, reliability. I mean, that's just, it is actually next level yeah. innovation that's happening at these places in India. Sure. Yeah, it's not happening in a huge widespread way. In mm-hmm. biotech, there's also lots of innovation happening there. Um, 
but but we 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 talk to IIT Madras a lot, ISC, all of these places to sort of see what's emerging out of there. Because once it comes out of R and D and needs to be commercialized, that's sort of where we can get involved. Overall, at the sort of broad Indian startup ecosystem level, uh, to your mind, what are some sort of good strengths today? What has matured, and what is still missing? The strengths are the ones that I think everybody talks about. There's a lot of people innovating. Entrepreneurship seems to be in the blood of lots of families in India and lots of people in India, the younger generation. I mean, the, all this energy is there. All these gaps are there. All these problems are there that need to be solved. And so people are identifying these problems and solving them. So that's fantastic. I think the government over the last 20 years has also built out a lot of infrastructure uh aadhar and upi and all these things that's helping india in a way that's actually unique and these things don't exist in other countries uh, mostly so that's all positive i think some of the challenges in the startup ecosystem in india i think we need to have more companies that reach profitability and become sustainable um you know coming back to the earlier point i made india's venture ecosystem started in 2006 um when i moved to india in 2011 um there were about give or take 20 million transacting commerce users in india if not less um and you know from that time till now 10 12 years later we're now at a billion users of the internet um probably 2 300 million transacting uh, uh people in india who transact online not just for e-commerce but for education and lots of other financial services and so on and so that's come but i think in the middle we had this huge bubble in the world which happened um not only in 2007-8 but also during the pandemic you know mm-hmm. a financial bubble and so that drove a lot of capital into india um and then i think a lot of companies didn't were not forced to look at profitability they could focus on growth and there's been enough written about this but i think that discipline is coming back in and i certainly like to see a lot more companies get to profitability over time i think the the discourse tends to be that investors don't want profitability and so on that that couldn't be further from the truth we want self sustaining companies um if nothing else that's when they become really valuable but also that's when they really can impact and grow and impact the country as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so we do want these companies. We've always wanted these companies to to get to profitability and I want to see more of that happen across the board, not just in our portfolio but across the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Anecdotally, uh we still hear of uh for example somebody getting a series A or a series B funding uh wanting to legally be in the US or you know some market uh, some location like that. I mean mm-hmm. uh Investors still still seem to be more comfortable with that kind of an arrangement. Um, is this something that the government just needs to change in terms of regulation? What is missing there on that front? So, just to set the record straight, in our portfolio, vast majority of the companies are India Private Limiteds. Okay. Vast majority. Mm-hmm. There is a small subset of companies that are software companies mm-hmm. or SaaS uh, companies that sell primarily into the US market. where at the end of the day the market's there a big part of the team will be there and at the end of the day there'll be US companies right. this has been done a lot by israeli companies where they start in israel with their markets in the US so yeah. they end up becoming US companies i think that will stay i think there's no reason not to continue with 
being a US company with an India subsidiary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the vast majority of our companies are India private limiteds. All of the companies I mentioned, most of them are India okay. private limiteds. I think the nuance comes in the uh, from the regulatory side just to make the playing field even. That Indian companies aren't disadvantaged in some way versus companies domiciled abroad. Right? And there have been policies in the past, we can get into those if you want, but that disadvantage Indian companies access to capital or they're taxed in a different way or whatever. Uh, or they can't, they're not allowed to go public abroad. They only can go public in India for some reason and so on. And that's still the case. So there are certain things that hamper the growth of Indian companies or Indian domicile companies that I think the governments over the years have slowly taken away and sort of freed it up. So that's nice. Um, but this is India. Sometimes you think, see things go the other way. We've seen a policy come in the last year where investment into a company is being taxed at 20%. That doesn't make sense. I mean, why would you disincentivize investment? But that's a policy now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's ways that the government is looking at changing that, but it's a, it's a policy. And so, you know, we just want to, I think as long as there's an even playing field, then companies can choose what they want, right? I don't think it should be regulated that you have to start here or you have to start there. Um, that comes from a little bit of a fear mindset. I don't think India has anything to fear. Like it's a great place to do business mm-hmm. um, and an and attractive one, as we just talked about. So, And, and on the VC front, uh, would you say today VC firms in India are pretty much doing everything that VC firms in the US or in Silicon Valley do? And, and in Lightspeed's own case, uh, have you already been attracting a fair number of uh, LPs from India? Uh, and historically, how's that been? So the the fund ecosystem in India has typically, when it started out in you know nineteen the nineties and then two thousand six, like I mentioned, vast majority of those funds were from abroad yeah. through the Mauritius route and now through Singapore and other places, right? Uh, in the last five to seven years, government and SEBI have come forward with this thing around AIFs, mm-hmm. and there's an AIF two category that's very prevalent that's sort of up and coming. Um, we are a fund that comes in from abroad. It's an international fund. Um, we're not a domestic AIF. Um, what we found over the years is that the capital available to invest in this category is available globally in the US and uh, Asia and uh, Europe and so on. That capital has been less available in India. Now it's up and coming. I think there's some institutions like SBI has been backing some venture funds and some mutual funds have started doing it and some family offices, but it's still very nascent in that sense. So you actually can't raise that much capital in India from India itself. So vast majority of funds go abroad for their capital. Um, that might change over time, but uh, and certainly change in countries like China, where the majority of venture funds are now, are now they have local renminbi capital mm-hmm. um, and European funds have local euro based capital. Um, we certainly hope it happens in India, but it's not there yet. It's still early in that uh, in that timeline. To your mind, uh, what are some of the most important ways uh, Lightspeed stands out, or you think you uh, differentiate yourself uh, with respect to other competing VC firms, and especially in the same space of early stage and so on? Yeah, um, there's three things that we pride ourselves on, and that we practice. Um, and sort of try and incorporate into how we work with founders. First is that we are global. 
So these six geographies I talked about, US, Europe, China, Israel, uh, Southeast Asia, and India, we have investment professionals across all of those. And we are integrated in the sense that we work together on things a bunch. So if I'm looking at an enterprise software company in India, a SaaS company, I will pull in a partner of mine sitting in Silicon Valley who's an expert in that area, right? If I'm looking at a you know security company, I might talk to my partner in Israel. Vice versa, if they're looking at a company in the US that's gonna target the Indian market, they will call me and we can talk to them about what the Indian market is like. So we leverage each other. So global, we bring that to bear for our founders. That's the first thing. The second is depth. Um, so when we look like I described earlier, when we look at any market, when we talk to any founders, just going three levels deeper on understanding the founders on understanding these markets and the gaps is something we take pride in. Sometimes founders think we take a bit longer than other investors because of that, but that way we think we get to better decisions and we can help our founders better. We can, because we can go into an investment knowing that this is where the opportunity is. So here's who we need to add to your team that you hadn't thought about yet. And so we can help them build their company. So depth is the second one. And the final one is sort of um, category creating. So a lot of the investments we make are in categories where there is no comparable company. We're not copying somebody or following somebody. We're creating a new business model or attacking a market that's not done. Oran was like that, Oyo was like that. And ShareChat, we backed ShareChat in 2016. The, the, the vast majority of people in India said there will never be a social media company from India. Twitter has one, Facebook has one, LinkedIn has one, forget about it. These companies now exist. When Oyo got started, people said Airbnb is gonna come and take the market. No, they haven't. Oyo is one. And then outside of portfolio, Ola, right? And when it started, everybody thought Uber would win, but Ola is there, right? And so on and so forth. So I think uh, category creating bets, the ability to take that risk when there's nothing else you can compare it to is something that we do. Do, do you recall um, what originally got you thinking about becoming a VC investor yourself? How long ago was this? Yeah, um, everybody starts off, uh, whether as an investor, otherwise uh, for different reasons. For me, I was a founder um, in in um, late 99, uh, during the dot-com bubble, as they call it at that time, I was in the US in the Bay Area and I started a mobile software company. So a bubble on top of a bubble because smartphones hadn't arrived, but we thought mobile had ha was starting to happen. Um, and so we raised venture capital in early 2000. Um, and so, and then the journey went from there. We ended up getting acquired by a public company on the New York Stock Exchange. It wasn't a huge outcome, but we learned a lot along the way. Um, and then when I finished with that experience and finished with the one year at the acquiry, I came out and said, what should I do next? Do I have another idea in me? And I, I just didn't have another idea, but I thought that it actually could be very exciting to sort of work with other founders, see what journeys they go through, and help them out. So I sort of got involved that way. There were a set of peers and friends of mine who were also involved in investing and they sort of encouraged me. And my intent at that time was to get into investing in the US to learn it. And actually I always had in my mind that I wanted to come back to India to do it over here. Because in 99, 2000, there wasn't that much of a venture capital industry. It ended up starting in 2006. And he came here in 2011, a bit later than that. But uh, that was the intent, learn it there, um, and then apply it here. And, and I just want to tie it together with this development of the country, you know, whether it's my upbringing or whatever, but I really want to, I think technology can have a role to play there. 
and venture capital can help these technologies get to market. What was your mobile uh, software startup about? I mean, was it a product you were developing and what was it about? It was uh, in the parlance of today's tech industry. It was a low-code application development environment to develop mobile applications. Um, and it ran on um, uh, our own servers. There was no cloud at that time. So we were a SaaS company. There was no term called SaaS. It was called Application Service Providers, ASPs. So we were a wireless, there was no term called mobile either. We were a wireless ASP. Um, And uh, we were targeting enterprises and helping them take their email onto mobile devices and so on and so forth. Today, there are companies that are doing that, right? I mean, now that who have built that kind of infrastructure. The many companies that do email on mobile phones or Salesforce automation on mobile phones. In fact, any enterprise software, any SaaS company has a mobile version of their software in a sense. Mm -hmm. But the lesson I learned there was that timing matters. I mean, it's an obvious one, but when you live it, then you learn it the best, which is, you know, we were probably 10 years ahead of the market. Mm-hmm. What what we call in our industry bleeding edge, mm-hmm. and uh, and we were not leading edge, we were bleeding edge, and so yeah, we got some customers, we got to some revenue, but really it was too early for most people didn't even have mobile devices that were internet connected. Talk about the lessons a little bit more. I mean, through each phase of your career, uh, when you look back, I mean, like you said at the very beginning, looking back, you can kind of you know put a thread there and looking forward probably didn't really think in terms of something very clear cut, but uh, so looking back, I mean, what, what are some of the biggest takeaways you know, in terms of professional learnings? Um, I'll, I'll mention a couple. Uh, one is the power of compounding and not talking from an investment perspective, but mm-hmm. in terms of relationships with people mm-hmm. uh, and knowledge, those two areas, just sticking to an area and just focusing on it, getting deep into it, doing stuff in it, you just develop relationships with other people who are interested in the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you develop knowledge of what's going on in that industry. So you give it a few years, you become a real insider. You know the right people. You know the right things that are happening. You can tell where things might be going. You can't do it by skipping jobs every one year or two years. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of younger folks really doing that. They all have their own reasons. I'm not saying there's no reason to do it. But when you do one year stints, you know, 10 years in a row, or even two years since the compounding does not happen in relationships and knowledge. So that's one thing that if I was my younger self, I would tell myself, stick, stick at it for a little bit. You, you, everything has its merit and you get to become a real insider versus skipping around on the outside. So that's one, the power of compounding. Um, and the final thing I'll say is in this, this is more of a philosophical point. In this day and age, people talk, a lot of us are engaged in social media and, and, and email and trying to be an influencer and this and that. And it's sort of shallowish, shallow type of work. Um, it's maybe related to the previous point, but just persevering with something and getting deeper just helps other things. I mean, you've been in the media industry for a while. Just being in it helps you see things much sure. more deeply than if you were coming at the insurance industry or some other industry out there, right? So just being in it helps. And so doing deeper work is important mm-hmm. versus just replying to emails and, and you know, tweeting something or putting something on Instagram. 
I would really recommend people shy away from that. Maybe you spend 10% of your time on that, but the other 90%, like get deep. Read yeah. books, not not tweets, you know. Write something for an hour versus write write a tweet, you know, that sort of thing. Just get a bit deeper. Yeah. Consistency, even on a day when you feel like it's not going anywhere. Yeah. That's what they say about the famous athletes out there. It's not like every day they break a world record. Right. It's not every day that they, the 100-meter champion runs a 100-meter race. That 100-meter champion might run a five-kilometer, might do a five-kilometer walk for that matter as part of their training. Yeah. Right? You vary it up, you change things, but you keep going. Have you ever found yourself uh, way outside your comfort zone, either deliberately because of something you wanted to learn or do, or... I don't know, because of some circumstances. And then do you recall that? And what did you learn from that? I'll give a couple of examples. When I first uh, moved, moved to India in 2011, I remember seeing some plans for e-commerce companies. Uh-huh. And uh, they had negative gross margins. Now, that's a technical term, but they basically it means they lose money every time they sell something. Mm. And I'd never seen that in my life. Having been an investor in the US and, and a founder and then working at other other larger companies. I'd never seen a business where you lose money every time you sell something. So that was very uncomfortable mm-hmm. for me. Now, not a personal existential issue, but I'm just saying I couldn't understand that. It's still the case today in some aspects of the Indian tech ecosystem, which I just scratch my head. I'm like, what is this? Um, and, uh, and as part of the ecosystem growing up, I think these companies will find sort of positive gross margins and be able to make money at least every time they sell something. Um, so that's an uncomfortable situation. I sure. No, I mean, if you recall that. from your own career, if you recall anything that happened to you, or, I mean, there might be something interesting there. Uh, I'd probably say, I sort of um, give give a broader topic and then there are examples on that, which is many times um, I found, uh, not many times, sometimes I found that and this is not an India thing, this happens in the US and elsewhere, I found that founders have promised something or I have promised something and we don't do it. Mm. Now that might be like, fine, it's okay, things happen, the world is the way it is, not, not everything. But sometimes it's more fundamental. People have said to me, they will move to you know, a certain city or to move to India to build their business and then they ended up not moving. And that fundamentally changed the thesis of our investment. Right. Um, or times they said they would disclose this or that and they didn't. And that's just, you know, you start thinking about ethics sometimes when it comes to that. So sometimes these areas where you like it's on the margin, it's in the gray area, you could let it go. Mm-hmm. But really, it all adds up. And I think the best founders in the world, the best investors in the world are very upfront and transparent. They say what they do, they, they want to do, they do it. Yeah, it might not be 100%, but they do it. They tell you what they've done, how it's worked, and then they keep going. Um, there's a lot more of like holding your cards close to your chest that sort of I find uncomfortable. Uh, now, to some people that comes across as being very blunt, but I think it's best to be just open about things and then, yeah, let the cards fall where they may. You already spent like three decades into your career Um What's what's your what gives you your sense of purpose? What inspires you to get up every morning and attack the day? As a personal angle and a professional angle, professionally we talked about, which is 
you know, I'm committed and it's my life's work to invest in and work with technologies and, and the internet in India. And that inspires me every day because I think that's helping develop the country in different ways. Um, whether it's like, like I said, education, finance services, healthcare, whatever. Um, so that's exciting. And as a firm, we've got now eight investing partners in Lightspeed in India. And we also look at Southeast Asia. I think it's just nice to work with a great set of folks who are on the same mission. Um, personally, I've got two daughters, uh, nine and 12 years old, and uh, the world they grew up in is going to be different from a climate perspective you were talking about, from an AI and how will technology help us perspective. It might be more dangerous. It might be better. We don't know. Technology can go both ways, as we know. Uh, and then the third thing that'll be very different about the world they grew up, that they are adults in, is that the divisions between countries, I feel, are going to grow. Mm. Uh, whether it's between China and the US or various other sort of divisions. And so this triple thing of climate, AI, and sort of geopolitics, I think is going to create a very different world for them. You can imagine many more refugee crises as people flee coastal areas. You know, you can imagine Northern India as a belt becoming very, very hot um, and unlivable in parts. Um, and therefore people going to the, further up into the Himalayas or various other parts. You don't know. That's not just India, other countries. So the world's going to be quite different. And so what gets makes me get up is, first of all, help them grow up into great adults and to have a great childhood and then hopefully prepare the world a bit so the world's a bit better. If you can solve climate, if you can solve, you know, AI responsibly, um, then that'll be a better world for them. I know it's a bit high-flying what I'm saying, but in a little way, we make our differences. Fair enough. I mean, quite, quite valid everything that you've said. Um, I myself have a, a teenager. He's 14 now. And these are some of the things that worry us all the time. And uh, at, the, at the big level, apart from the daily, day-to-day -day kind of, you know, Am I parenting enough or am I parenting too much? Yeah. <laughs> All of that. Uh, okay. One other point that I always ask uh, anytime I get a chance to, you know, meet successful people uh, who've done a lot, who've learned a lot. Um, what What is your sort of favorite productivity hack? Okay. Uh, it might sound banal, but it's just making a list. Okay. <laughs> I used to be the type who used to have massive to-dos, like 300 to-dos sitting in some piece of software, like Microsoft uh, to-do or something else. And I would never even look at it once I put something in there. But just sitting down in the morning saying, here's top of mind, here are the th things I need to do that are important to me. And just doing that. Oh. That's about it. It's not some massive system out there. And like, there's all sorts of self-help gurus out there, productivity gurus out there. Just make a list, just cross it off as you do it. That's the most important productivity hack I have. Okay, uh, Dave, very nice, wonderful conversation. Okay. Thank you so much for making time for me very generously. I definitely hope to keep the conversation going. Thank you so much. Um, appreciate it and uh, hope to see you soon again. And happy to answer any other questions in the future. Thank you. That's it for this conversation. I'll be back soon with another episode of the Startup Fridays. I'm Hari Arakli. Thank you for listening.